Well, good evening. It's good to see each one of you here tonight. Would you please stand with me? Let's turn to page 383 to begin our service together this evening. Page 383, we'll sing verses 1, 2, and 4. There shall be showers of blessing. There shall be showers of blessing. This is the promise of love. There shall be seasons refreshing. Sent from the Savior above. Showers of blessing. Showers of blessing we need. Mercy drops round us are falling. But for the showers we plead, there shall be showers of blessing, precious reviving again. Over the hills and the valleys, sound of abundance of rain. Showers of blessing, showers of blessing we need. Mercy drops round us are falling. But for the showers we plead, there shall be showers of blessing. Oh, that today they might fall. Now as to God we're confessing, now as on Jesus we call. Showers of blessing, showers of blessing we need. Mercy drops round us are falling. But for the showers we plead. Amen. Amen. Man, I'm telling you, I think we need showers uh, spiritually and physically right now. Amen. Uh, but sure glad you're here uh, tonight. I want to welcome you to our uh, midweek service, our oasis uh, in the desert. And uh, yes, I made it back tonight. Amen. And sure appreciate you, though, praying for us. We had a great time. And a great meeting there at Landmark Baptist Church and preaching their August uh, revival. And then we hit the road uh, this morning and made it in about 4.30 this afternoon. So it's good to be home tonight. And uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Pray for Brother Tim uh, Quinlan. He's going to be our preacher, of course, tonight. I didn't want to me- write a message while I was driving about 85 miles an hour, all right? So, uh, but uh, looking forward to hearing Brother Tim tonight. He's been doing a phenomenal study through uh, the book of First Peter, and I know it'll be a blessing uh, to us uh, tonight. I'm going to ask Brother Steve Parker if you would pray for us tonight, brother. Yes, help him, Lord. Amen. You may be seated uh, tonight, and uh, we got quite a few things coming up and quite a few things uh, going on uh, with the uh, uh, doing some work over in the fellowship hall and getting the floors ready. So we had the buses drop off tonight in the front of the church, and I got to be honest with you, I really enjoyed that, uh, watching all those kids uh, come through and uh, heading downstairs to their classes, and that was a real uh, blessing. 
Uh, so as already mentioned tonight, just by way of announcements, of course, Brother Tim Quinlan going to be preaching uh, tonight, and then uh, Faith Baptist School, uh, things going on as we're getting ready to start uh, that. Tomorrow night, there's a faculty meeting, and so if you are a, a teacher or monitor uh, or on staff there at the school, uh, tomorrow night, there is a faculty meeting at 6 o'clock, and of course, that'll be downstairs in the school. And then uh, school starts uh, this coming Monday, so excited for that. And uh, 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 some of our kids are excited for that. Some are not. Amen. And uh, I know Emily is excited because she got shoes that light up when she steps now. So she's very excited about that. Surprise, she didn't wear them to church tonight. Amen. And uh, so uh, I don't like them because when they go off in the car, I feel like I'm getting pulled over. Amen. Uh, but uh, August, the uh, Monday, uh, of course, next Monday, August the 15th, be the first day of school. And Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday that uh, will be all half days and then full days will start on Thursday uh, the 18th. And then, of course, also wanted to mention this, August the 20th, it, uh, Saturday is our church-wide outreach, and so be meeting again over in the fellowship hall at 1030 in the morning and heading out. And then August the 21st, which is on a Sunday, uh, I believe this is in the evening time after the evening service, is a teen activity, and I knew this was coming. It's sushi night. You know, it always starts with the young people. Man, I'm just kidding you. I, I actually ate some sushi while I was on vacation, but I'm just telling you right now, I will never have a cat. <laughs> Amen. Because a man needs to know his limitations, all right? Uh, but there, there is a teen activity, so if you've got young people in the teen class, make sure you're aware of that. And then August the 24th, Wednesday night, uh, Brother Eric Watson uh, will be preaching. <clears throat> and then August the 25th, if you have kids in Faith Baptist School, they'll be the parent orientation. That's on a Thursday night at 6 o'clock. And then August the 28th, which is after the Sunday night service, be a linger longer. And then August the 30th is on a, on a Tuesday night. Uh, the ladies' meetings will be starting back up now that summer is ending. And so that uh, ladies' meeting, uh, August the 30th, Tuesday night, 7 o'clock, is a soup and salad, uh, ladies. And so make sure that you're aware of that. And then also, lastly, wanted to mention this, September the 23rd and 24th is the Baptist Men's uh, Recharge uh, there in Andover, Kansas. And so if any of our men, as well as our young men, any of our young men, we've opened it up the last couple of years to uh, some of our, uh, or our teenage boys as well. And so if any of our men or young men would like to go uh, to that, there's a sign-up sheet in the outer foyer. You can stay in the bunk at the camp, or you can stay in a hotel. If you stay in the hotel, it uh, costs a little bit more. I believe it's $140 uh, to stay in a hotel. And uh, if you want to just stay in the bunk at the camp there, you can stay there. It's $70. But you do need to sign up by August the uh, 28th, which is on a Sunday. And so make sure you're aware of that. If you didn't get a bulletin this past Sunday, those are available. That way you know uh, what's coming uh, up. All right, let's go ahead and keep going uh, tonight. And if you have your prayer list, let's go ahead and get those uh, out. I uh, was able to get the updated uh, prayer list, and of course we do. I'm so thankful. Uh, we've uh, had a lot of folks here recently uh, with the sickness and COVID and stuff like that, kind of going around again, and sure thankful to see folks healing up and getting back uh, in the house of the Lord. And so do continue to pray uh, for uh, those that are still kind of battling uh, through it. I uh, really only had one that I wanted to add to the prayer list, and that's Miss Jean Wiseman. 
Uh, for those that don't know, she's an elderly lady that's been visiting and coming uh, for several months now and uh, kind of comes in uh, with her uh, walker and she's just as faithful as can be and actually called last week and, t- and talked with her and she said, I got sick and thought it was sinuses and they tested me and come to find out I had COVID and so uh, Lord willing, she's, uh, she did sound like she was doing really good and so continue to pray for her. As she recovers, and then also wanted to ask if you'd continue to pray for my mom uh, that had COVID as well. This was her first time uh, with it, and I uh, did talk with her today, and she said today she finally uh, is starting to feel a little bit better, and so thankful uh, for uh, thankful for that. Do have some updates as well. We've been praying for Justin Laverne that's in the first column there, about three quarters of the way down. And his dad, Troy, uh, Justin Laverne's having a kidney transplant, getting it from his dad, Troy. And this is a co-worker of Brother David Griffin. Uh, they ended up having to postpone that surgery uh, because both of them got COVID. And so they did push it back. And I believe it's going to be on September the 26th. And so if you would continue to pray uh, for them. Of course, remember the McRae family that's going to be travel or that's traveling and so Brother Roy and Miss Sue McRae, also the Wills family uh, for bereavement, uh, I believe had an uncle that uh, passed away tragically with an uh, ATV accident, and so pray for them. And then also, if you would, add on there Miss Barbara Bellis, who's going to be having uh, uh, some surgery on her fingers uh, August the 25th, and so pray for her. And then also, if you would, add on there Miss Christy uh, Wisdom. Uh, with some health issues, and if you could certainly pray for her, as well as Miss Ginger uh, Sexton. Good to see Brother Gene here tonight, but do continue to pray for Miss Ginger Sexton and Miss uh, Brother Owen Wood and Brother Bob Nugent, all of them battling some pretty serious uh, health issues, and so pray uh, for them. Anybody have an update or a prayer request tonight as we go to the Lord in prayer? We'll certainly take those at this time. All right, Miss Kristen. So that's John Huffman. Okay. Okay. All right. Is he in KU or where's he at? Do they research? Okay. Okay. So let's pray for him and let's add him onto our prayer list. John. Uh, Huffman and pray for him. Anybody else tonight as we go to the Lord in prayer? Brother Raymer? Okay. So let's pray for Miss Miss Janet Raymer and gallbladder surgery. So and you said that's tomorrow? Okay. All right, let's pray that goes well. So all right. Brother Griffin? Okay. Yeah. So you said she's got cancer? And, okay. Okay, 
And you said uh, hospice. She's in hospice care. Okay. All right. So let's pray for Miss Jane Buckley, and uh, we'll get her on the prayer list and be praying for her. Sure thankful she's got a testimony of knowing the Lord. Amen. That's a blessing there. All right. Anybody else tonight? All right. Brother C.J. Reeves. What did he say? What? When? Week from today. Glory, hallelujah. All right, I was going to ask you about that, so good deal. So that's a week from today. Is that the 17th then, right? Y'all are going to make me do math in the pulpit. Just things are going to get a little scary right now. I mean, it's 8, 17. All right, so praise the Lord. That's a blessing. That was, uh, I think it was last Wednesday night we were praying about that. They were still in negotiations, and they got a message before they left church last Wednesday night. Everything was good to go, so that's a blessing there. So awesome stuff. All right, Miss Marie Christian. Yes. Praise the Lord. So let's see. Yep, he had the stomach infection, so he's doing okay. So that's a blessing there. Appreciate you letting us know that. So anybody else tonight? All right, let's go ahead and have our men uh, come tonight and uh, take up the Lord's offering. <clears throat> and um, sure, thank the Lord. Uh, we have a prayer list, and we can lift up these burdens and needs and do... Continue to pray for uh, these folks and uh, a lot of things going on. So, amen. Brother Raymer, would you pray for us uh, tonight, brother? Yes. Amen. Amen.
Wednesday night we do a uh, missionary update, and of course Brother uh, Tim Quinlan normally does that, and so since he's preaching uh, tonight, I thought I would bring uh, the missionary update. We have several uh, missionaries that <clears throat> the fields that they are in, um, well, it's, it's a little bit of a, it's a, bit of a risk um, for us to mention their names and, and things publicly. And so we typically refrain from reading their updates and things like that uh, in our services with our live stream and things like that. But I wanted to read one to you uh, tonight. I'm not going to mention their names. If you'd like to know their names, you have the prayer list there. And on the back is a list of our missionaries. And in the first column, about halfway down, you'll find our missionaries uh, to Israel. And so I'm going to read this uh, to you tonight and hopefully not mention any names as I'm reading and mess up, all right? Uh, But anyways, he writes, Greetings in the wonderful name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord, we found an apartment in Kibbutz Elot and moved moved in July the 22nd. The Lord opened the door for us to find this and made arrangements for us to move in. Renting a car is another adventure. We're looking at leasing or buying a vehicle in the next month. Our car rental is due back at the end of August, and so please pray for our uh, transportation. My wife and I were invited to a Shabbat meal in the home of our good friend this past Friday. It was amazing to say the least, and at the end of their reading, he asked if I wanted to say a blessing. Wow. I got to pray for our dinner in the home of of an Israeli, and the Lord has opened up doors for us to be a witness and so keep praying for opportunities to talk about the true Messiah and have an opportunity to lead these dear people to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's incredible, isn't it? He said, please continue to pray for our Hebrew lessons. Uh, we have an online tutor, which is wonderful. Our instructor is very patient and taking his time uh, with us. And of course, he has his hands full. Uh, we have been asking the Lord to put us in contact with believers here in Elot uh, and even in the kibbutz. We have made new friends who have asked us, who have asked about us, and we have opened the door with many of them to talk about the Lord at future uh, meetings. Our meeting with immigration was postponed from July the 27th to August the 7th, and this approval is important as it will allow us to stay in the country for a year without having to leave and come back. As I said in our last prayer letter, moving here didn't come with an instruction manual. We're laying the groundwork for the next couple who heeds the Lord's call and comes uh, to help us. And so they have their address on here and things like that, but of course they end their letter with Shalom. And of course you know who it is that we are praying uh, for tonight. But without mentioning their names, I want to ask if we could pray for them. I know this, you know their name tonight, but the Lord knows their names. And so let's pray for them tonight. Let's pray for the people of Israel. They, they need the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. It's amazing God would use them to give us the gospel, but boy, they need it tonight. And so let's pray for them. I'm going to ask Brother uh, Alan Quinlan if you'd stand and uh, pray for our missionaries in Israel uh, tonight.
I'm going to ask you if you would stand with me one last time tonight. Let's turn to page number 425. Page 425 in times like these. We'll sing all three verses for our last song this evening. In times like these, you need a Savior. In times like these, you need an anchor. Be very sure, be very sure. Your anchor holds and grips the solid rock. This rock is Jesus. Yes, he's the one. This rock is Jesus, the only one. Be very sure, be very sure. Your anchor holds and grips the solid rock. In times like these, you need a Bible. In times like these, oh, be not idle, be very sure, be very sure. Your anchor holds and grips the solid rock. This rock is Jesus, yes, he's the one. This rock is Jesus, the only one. Be very sure, be very sure. Your anchor holds and grips the solid rock. In times like these, I have a Savior. In times like these, I have an anchor, I'm very sure, I'm very sure. My anchor holds and grips the solid rock. This rock is Jesus, yes, he's the one. This rock is Jesus, the only one. Very sure, I'm very sure. My anchor holds and grips the solid rock. Amen. Aren't you thankful for the rock tonight? Amen. Praise the Lord. Please remain standing. Get your Bibles ready for the message tonight. Well, again, I appreciate Brother Quinlan and Miss Anna. They're such a blessing here at our church and the things that they do uh, behind the scenes. And I was thinking about camp and all that they did in the concession stands and and just uh, helped out as well with our teens going to the uh, youth con. And so appreciate Brother Tim coming tonight and preaching. And so, Brother, you come and preach the word. Amen. Well, I'm certainly thankful for every opportunity I get to preach. I'd like to thank Pastor for... Uh, the opportunities he gives me throughout the year uh, to just take a book and, and go through it. I, I was actually texting a, uh, a buddy of mine from college uh, just the other night talking about going through First Peter here in chapter 3. That's where we'll be. So First Peter chapter 3. And I said, yeah, it's, you know, I've 
preach several times a year. I'm going through 1 Peter right now. I think this is going to be sermon 12 and kind of counted it up real quick. Yeah, this is sermon number 12. And I was like, well, I just started this like six or eight months ago. <laughs> and uh, my first message was back in like February or March of last year. And uh, um, I, you know, I, I knew we'd be, you know, probably in the neighborhood of 20 to 25 messages, and that's pretty much where we're on track to be. But uh, it, it feels like it really hasn't been that long since we started this, and we're already here getting to chapter 3, and uh, uh, I'm, I am thankful. You know, I, I say this every book I preach through. It's my new favorite book, <laughs> and, and so much of that is just how the Lord works in you uh, as you're studying through these things, and, and uh, so I'm, I've, I'm very thankful uh, for this book and, and lessons I've learned and hopefully lessons we've been able to learn together through it. So 1 Peter chapter 3. Uh, a passage I've been not dreading. <laughs> uh, uh, I've been, and I wouldn't say looking forward either. It's been on my mind throughout this whole this whole uh, series through First Peter. I knew it was coming, and and so it's it's really been on my mind uh, for quite a while now. And uh, I'm, I'm thankful that first of all, our pastor trusts me to preach through a section like this. And I feel like, uh, he and I are on the same page already. And if we're not, then he'll let you know <laughs> here before too long. But, uh, but I, I think there are some important lessons we need to take from just the first seven verses here. First Peter chapter three. Now, remember, as we're reading through this, this is in the context of everything we've talked about, even into from chapter 2. Remember, the kind of the second section of the book starts in verse uh, 13 of chapter 2, and it has to do with submission to authority and uh, uh, the way God expects us to live our lives here on this earth. He says, likewise, and that would tie us back into uh, the previous several verses, likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands. That, if any obey not the word, they, may, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. Whose adorning let it not be that outward adorning of plaiting the hair and of wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible. Now that phrase right there, when you understand what he's talking about, I... I'd never really caught that before. The hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, the part that's going to last, that time doesn't really have any bearing over. Even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. For after this manner in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves. Now that would have to do with the, the Old Testament saints, the, the ones we hear about in the Scripture. In fact, he specifically mentioned Sarah here in just a second. But, but I think we can also, and we'll take a little bit of a look at maybe, maybe those holy women like Ruth and Rahab, Jael, and others who just said, we're going to do what God expects us to do, and God has great things to say about them. They adorn themselves like this, being in subjection unto their own husbands. Verse 6, Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are as long as ye do well, and are not afraid with any amazement. Likewise, ye husbands, in case you were thinking you thought you might get away with it, 
Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the, the action of submission in marriage. Uh, and I know today this really is going to fly in the face. It's 180 degrees from what you'll hear throughout our culture today. Uh, but it's a scriptural principle, and I, I think we're going to see that here this evening. So we're going to talk a little bit about submission, specifically in marriage, is grace in action. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for, uh, for your word and for the time you've given us this evening. I pray that you would uh, speak tonight, that your spirit would have liberty, and ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you for standing. So if you've been with us over the past um, 14 months or so, uh, as we've gone through First Peter, we, through chapter 1, and, and now we've made it all the way through chapter 2, the last several messages, I'd say the last probably three or four messages, I'm guessing, um, have had to do with submission to authority. The fact of the matter is that God expects all Christians to submit to the authority structures that are placed over them. Uh, we certainly don't have time to get back into chapter 2. Uh, you know, if you, if you weren't here uh, over the last few months as we've done a few of those messages, uh, you can get on uh, Sermon Audio, get on the church website and look at those. I'm not one to... to uh, I don't want to promote myself in this way, but at the same time, that really is the foundation for what we're talking about here in chapter 3. Lays that groundwork. So if you haven't heard those, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to uh, the last two messages in particular, uh, starting there from uh, verse 13 of chapter 2. So this section of 1 Peter focuses on submission in the life of the believer. As followers of Christ, we are to submit to the authority structures such as government, school, and work, uh, specifically, already he has mentioned government, submitting ourselves to rulers, to whether that be the federal government or the state or local governments. As much as we, as much as we are annoyed and frustrated and as dumb as we see all these things that are transpiring, uh, it is still our responsibility to have a testimony marked by submission. And he says you need to do that in verse 14, 15, for so is the will of God. And we talked about, and, and you know, it's, it's so common these days that everybody wants a reason for everything. And, and I think, especially uh, Brother Pyle, just, just last week at YouthCon, mentioned this, and, and it uh, immediately made me think of this verse. Um, because as we are raising the next generation, Brother Jack is preaching to the teens right now, you know, he's not down there just, all right, everybody, let's get around and have a circle and chat a little bit and have a little devotion. No, he's preaching to them because they need that. They need to be grounded in the faith. And he needs to explain the principles of the Word of God to them. It does no good for teens to grow up in our church, get into their, into their adult life, and any little challenge of the faith towards them, they go, uh... Uh, I, I don't know. 
that they have no idea. No, they need to know those things. But at the same time, they also need to understand that there are times in our lives where God just expects us to trust Him without explaining. That we don't have to know every little thing. So he says it's the will of God that you submit to those who are in authority over you. Or submit to our bosses. And remember, last time we talked about even in the context of these first century slaves, they weren't... Now, slavery, again, in the first century is not the same as what we think of in the 17th and 18th and 19th centuries here in America and England and other parts of the world. In fact, much of that is still going on in parts of the world today. It wasn't really so much the same. The same, the Roman Empire, the government had all sorts of rules and regulations regarding slavery, and many slaved, slaves owned, uh, could own their own property. Some of them were doctors and lawyers and things like that. And uh, uh, there were a large portion of the churches that were slaves. Uh, these people who were reached, uh, and of course, as we'll see uh, in the message later tonight, how that God throughout the New Testament, we see really throughout the Bible, we see that God loves to take the weak things of this world and make them strong and make them mighty. And so God worked through, in many, of the, in many cases, these slaves who whose masters may not have been the nicest people to work for, who would maybe in in some cases have thought nothing about uh, serious repercussions for them saying, I'm a servant of Jesus now. And yet he still said, whether your master is great or terrible, froward is the term he used, God still expects you to serve them, to submit to their authority. But that authority stops when it goes against God's authority. Uh, The the apostles told the the religious leaders that uh, they were to obey God rather than men. And so when they said, you need to stop preaching in Jesus' name, they said, no, we can't do that. And though they dealt with persecution for it, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for His name. Of course, we've already seen throughout this epistle that the gospel of the New Testament is a gospel of suffering because we are choosing to take part in Christ's suffering. Now, I want to be clear here. This isn't a message necessarily about the sanctity of marriage or the the basic structure. We're going to make a lot of assumptions. I, I think I know the crowd to whom I'm speaking tonight, so we're going to make a lot of assumptions and not deal with a lot of that groundwork. I, I'm thankful here before too long, our pastor's going to be preaching through Ephesians chapter 5, and he's going to deal with a lot of that when he gets to it. And that's not really the, the point of Peter's argument here. He assumes, I think, a lot too about what his, uh, what his readers, how their marriages would have looked even at that time. And so, so we're not going to deal a whole lot with, with a lot of the foundational structure of a marriage, uh, but we are going to deal with a little bit as, as we need to. But I think most in here would say, well, I know how a marriage should look in the life of a believer. And another thing, we're, we're really just going to hit this passage verse by verse. I mean, just one at a time. It, this is one of those uh, passages where it just kind of flows right along through, and, and I think you'll see Uh, see how that operates here in just a minute. But here is really the first 
uh, principle that we deal with in the first six verses here. God expects Christian wives to submit to the leadership of their own husbands. He says, Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands. So you notice the very first word in verse 1, likewise. That just ties us back to the previous. First off, it's, it's an indicator that we're still in the same subject matter. We're still, still in the same, same general context here. And remember, context matters when we're dealing with the Scriptures. Context matters. And so that likewise just reminds us to tie back into the previous verses here. <clears throat> and while we're going to get into this more, I want to start out by saying the marriage relationship is not the same relationship as a master-servant or employer-employee relationship. I think we'll see that pretty clearly here, here in just a few minutes. But the submission aspect operates much the same way. The principle there is the same throughout. <clears throat> Just like all Christians have the responsibility to submit to the human authority structures that are placed over us, we all have the responsibility to submit to our employers or uh, other th- situations like that. The Christian wife has the responsibility to submit to her husband in the marriage relationship. And I think we're going to see that doesn't mean what our culture often thinks it means these days. So that likewise doesn't mean in the exact same way, but it does point to a similar responsibility. And I think that's an important distinction to make because this example is only one or is the only one in which Peter addresses both parties. In the previous sections, Peter doesn't address the masters, he, ad- he addresses the servants. Or as what we would normally equate that to our days, he doesn't in- address the em- uh, employer, he addresses the employee. And even, even in the first few verses when he talks about submitting to government, although we can, we can draw some, some principles of government from there, and of course Paul deals with that in Romans and 1 Corinthians, uh, specifically I'm thinking of, the, of Romans chapter 12, I believe it is, uh, how that uh, the governments have a responsibility before God to govern correctly, that's really not Peter's focus. He doesn't address the government. The assumption is these governments are doing, supposed to be doing their thing, and so you as a citizen should respect and submit to that government. But here, when he talks about the marriage relationship, he addresses both parties. The first reason Peter gives for this subjection or submission is so that those who have unbelieving husbands would be a testimony to them. It happened then and it happens today. There are ladies in this church whose husbands are unsaved or or maybe they go to a different church or whatever the case may be. Specifically, Peter is addressing those ladies in in these churches who would have had unbelieving husbands. Of course, I mean, this is first-generation Christianity here, that you're dealing with these people who are coming completely out of a pagan background, and the woman has heard the gospel and she's trusted in Christ, and her husband maybe is at a point where he's a part of another religion. Or he's, he doesn't want to really have anything to do with the religion, but you know, he, he doesn't have anything to do with that. Maybe, I mean, certainly at this point, the assumption is that he's probably heard the gospel and, and she has been a testimony to him. 
But the fact of the matter is that that happens. And even today, there are both wives and husbands whose spouses, uh, in many cases, want nothing to do with the Christ that they serve. Or maybe they just aren't at the point where they're ready to accept Christ yet or whatever place they might be. So Peter addresses that. And the, the, I think what we can see here is that it's more likely, in fact, I think we see today, it's usually more likely for the lady to, be, uh, to trust in the gospel and to be faithful in church and her husband to be the one to, that really doesn't want to have anything to do with spiritual matters. And I think we'll see when we get down to verse 7 that a lot of times has to do with our shirking our responsibility to lead in the marriage. But I don't want to get ahead of myself. So these ladies would be members of the church. They were saved. They were baptized. They're active in serving the Lord. And their husbands would, in many, time, many cases, want nothing to do with Christ, nothing to do with their Christianity. And in fact... In fact, I think we can see there are, there are instances of that today. In many cases, in, in that culture, a wife who went counter-religion to her husband was off the deep end. Uh, that, well, no, whatever the husband, whatever religion he follows, then the whole family's just going to, I mean, that's just how this works. The whole family's going to be doing that. And yet here were these wives saying, you know what, I've trusted in Christ now. They, wouldn't, they, they recognized that they shouldn't even give lip service to this other religion. And so here they are put in this position, well, well, what do I do? When my husband is doing all this and he's in this pagan religion and, and all the, the various so-called worship practices that went along with that, and here was this wife saying, I'm just trying to serve the Lord, but I'm, I, you know, I love my husband and I want to submit to him. And Peter says, yes. Even if your husband is not serving the Lord, even if he wants nothing to do with Christ, that marriage relationship, again, we're not going to get into, into all that, but the marriage relationship, suffice it to say, was ordained by God uh, back in Genesis. And so he says, you have a responsibility to still submit to your husband, even if he's not serving the Lord. And some of these Christian ladies would suffer the same persecution the church as a whole was suffering but from their own husbands. And even in the midst of that, just like submissive servants or employees, the Christian wife can be a testimony of God's grace and power to an unbelieving husband. It's a good play on word here. That if any obey not the word, that would be the husbands who obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives. What he's saying is that the lifestyle of the believing wife is often more a testimony than the words she says. Now, I don't want to perpetuate stereotypes, but as a husband, when my wife brings up something more than once, regularly, I don't need to be reminded every six months, year, whatever the case may be. I think some of you see where I'm going. It may not be taken that well. There's a word I'm not going to use, but most husbands would say, well, I've thought it from time to time. <laughs> and these unbelieving husbands, not being followers of Christ, and especially if they belong to another religion where they were actively opposed to Christianity, bringing it up constantly, well, I need to be a testimony. Yes, you do. And the times that the Lord will give you to, to talk about it, 
And to be a testimony that way, then you need to make use of those times. But constantly, every day, Peter says, no, you need to live your testimony. You need to live in such a way that they see there's a difference. So often we recognize that though words have power, words constantly repeated tend to lose their power. He says their chaste conversation, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. That would be a life free from moral defilement. Now, we talked about this. Just like the servant and the citizen are to submit to their authorities, so long as those authorities are not requiring disobedience to God, the believing wife is to do the same. But you must also remember that your husband's authority does not and cannot supersede God's authority. And when he tries to get you to do something wrong, when he says we are going to participate in, that, in this sin, then that is the time, just like when the government says you're going to do this wrong, and we would say by conscience before God, no, I cannot participate in that. Then as a Christian wife, you may have to say from time to time, no, I can't participate in that. God wins. But this chaste conversation has nothing to do with kowtowing to your husband's every whim. It has to do with living a life that is holy in obedience to your heavenly Father. Notice he says, coupled with fear. Now, this isn't really a fear of the husband. In fact, in verse 6, he commands that they not be fearful. We'll talk about that here in a minute. We have to remember that this pops up throughout the book. Starting back in chapter 1, Peter reminds us to have a healthy fear of discipline from our heavenly Father. In chapter 2, servants are commanded to obey their masters with all fear. But ultimately, this fear, when it says coupled with fear, has to do with the wife's relationship to God. Again, as he is the ultimate authority, the one you as a Christian wife will answer to one day, your testimony, your daily life must be tied to your fear, or I think we could also say reverence, of God above all. He goes on in verse 3 to talk about the outward adorning. And again, he really, this is just more of an example, a, a general principle here. We're not going to get into uh, so much dress standards and things like that here, but part of the holy life has to do with your outward expression. Uh, part of that life is living, or part of living that holy life is how you draw attention to yourself. Now, there are groups who take this verse, uh, verse 3, whose outward, whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of plating the hair and of wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel. And there are groups who take that and say, well, this means that women should never do their hair. They shouldn't wear makeup or any of that kind of stuff. They, they, they should, you know, bring no attention that way to themselves. Nothing, none of that, that's just, that's, that's not biblical. That's not right. Shouldn't have anything to do with that. There are groups who say that. But I don't think he's saying that you should just abstain from all makeup, all ever doing your hair up or things like that. Uh, throughout Scripture, when it talks about the outward appearance, it's almost universally in the context of the inner man versus the outward man. God cares about the inward man primarily, but the outward man is a representation of what's inside. So he's not saying that you can't wear these things, but that these things shouldn't be done in such a way as to bring the focus on you. If you'll notice, the last part of the phrase says, or of putting on of apparel. 
It's, it, and even in the, the, the Greek translation there, there's no mention of fancy or expensive clothing. It simply is clothing, apparel. So really, if you were to take the position that these verses command women not to wear jewelry or makeup or that kind of stuff, then, I mean, you at least need to be consistent. Well, no, no, we wouldn't go there. I mean, I don't want to be crass here, but that's literally what Peter is saying here, is that clothing, whether whatever kind of clothing it is, or makeup or jewelry or whatever, should not be worn such that it would bring the attention on you. This points to the biblical principle that the outward appearance is not to be the focus of attention. Now let's go to verse 4. But let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. There it is, a meek and quiet spirit. They just want us women to zip our mouths shut and get back in the kitchen. That's a sad opinion about something which the Bible has such a high view on. Again, we're not going to get much into the gender roles as found in Scripture, but a meek and quiet spirit is not get in the kitchen and keep your mouth shut. It is, however, a continual attitude of faith in God. It is not selfishly assertive, pushy, or demanding to get its own way. It puts others first. It recognizes that all things are in God's hands And as such, I don't have to demand my own way. Such a spirit is universally beautiful to other human beings. Though we are primarily dealing with Christian wives here, I think we can all recognize the universal truth of this statement. The opposite of a meek and quiet spirit, I think often today we call it a Karen. We hear that a lot. There's just something beautiful about a gentle, calm spirit. But even more than other people finding it beautiful, because again, that's not the focus here. Even more than that, God finds it to be of great value. God finds this spirit extremely valuable. Now, earlier on in the verse, he says, in that which is not corruptible. In other words, that kind of spirit, while viewed as weak and contemptible by our culture, has an endurance that will outlast this world. Ladies, your attitude towards your husband and his leadership has eternal consequences. What will stand the test of time and last into eternity is the meek and quiet spirit that your Creator finds to be of great value. In verses 5 and 6, Peter gives us the example of Sarah and other holy women from the Scriptures. Notice he says in verse 5, For after this manner in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves. I love that, adorned themselves. In direct contradiction to the carnal adorning of jewels and clothes and all of that, God expects ladies to be adorned with a meek spirit. But it is an adorning. There's a saying I've heard, and probably most of us have heard it. Some poet in years past came up with it. And I see it shared on social media from time to time. says, well-behaved women seldom make history. And you know, the history books may never record many of the women who submitted to their husband's leadership like God requires 
but oh, how they have shaped history. It's said that John and Charles Wesley's mother, with something like 19 children, had no space or time to herself, but took every day at least an hour just to cover herself in her own. You know, they wore those big dresses back then. She would literally take it and drape it over herself on on a chair or something like that so she could spend some time in prayer, praying for her children and her family. And look what God did through her sons. We just finished teaching about Ruth in our Sunday school class. She followed Boaz's lead, and look what God did through that. Hebrews 11, the Hall of Faith, specifically mentions both Sarah and Raham. I mentioned Jael earlier. You may not know, that's a lesser known name, but she's the one that God gave the glory of the battle to when uh, Barak said, well, you know, how do I know the Lord's, uh, you know, you, Deborah, the prophetess, you need to come with me because I want to make sure that the Lord's going to be with us. And she said, okay, I'll go with you. But if I do, God's going to give the glory of the battle, this wind to a, to a woman. And he did because Jael was the one who was uh, a wife of Heber the Kenite, I believe it was. And, and they had kind of friendly relations with everybody. They were nomadic. And so uh, they were closely related, I'm not going to get into all that, to uh, the Jewish people and, and were very uh, close. I, I want to say there was some blood relation there. I don't remember all of it right off the top of my head. But uh, she was just in taking care of the house, taking care of the tent that day. And the uh, Sisera, I believe it was, from the Syrian army, the head of the Syrian army came by and he said, please hide me and, and let me get some rest there. If anybody comes looking for me, tell them I'm not here. You haven't seen me. And she said, okay. But she knew what the Lord had commanded. They were the enemies of Israel. And so she drove a tent spike through his head, drove him, fastened him to the dirt. So if you think that God just expects Christian ladies that they don't ever get to do anything cool, that's just not true. (laughs) And certainly even today, God has given the glory of that battle to her and not to Barak. That meek and quiet spirit is exactly what God is looking for because that's how you were created to be. Many of you know the Hainlines, Brother Keith and Miss Karen Hainline. They were missionaries to Kenya for many years. We supported them. And he's now the head of the missions department at Heartland Baptist Bible College. He told us a story one time in in our missions class that when he was in Bible college, so this would have been probably back in the early to mid-80s, he's in Bible college and they had a professor who quite literally took verse 6 here and tried to make it an example to his students by having his wife come into class, get down on her knees before him and call him Lord in front of the whole class of 80 or 100 students. But can I tell you, that is not what Peter's talking about here. And that really, things like that are what give this meek and quiet spirit or what makes our culture, our world today say, well, see, that's a a terrible thing. We don't want to have anything to do with that. But that's not what any reasonable person can get from this passage. 
And it's certainly not what Peter has in mind. He's not really citing a specific incident. Some would say, well, you know, Sarah does mention uh, when the angels tell, uh, or when God tells Abraham that he's going to have a son, and Sarah hears it, and, and she specifically says, Lord, there. But I, I, other than just the mention of this one word, there's no indication that he has that specific incident in mind. But when it talks about even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord... The idea is, and I think the principle is, that he's pointing out a continual attitude of submissiveness to her husband leadership. Even when he made bad decisions. Even when he went into Egypt and they shouldn't have gone there. He then equates Christian wives to being her daughters as they maintain the same attitude of submissiveness to their husbands. And that's the position of the New Testament as a whole, that those who've trusted in Christ are now the spiritual children of Abraham. They are now his descendants in Christ, and the Christian wife who imitates the submissiveness and faith of Sarah are spiritually her children also. And then he says, as long as ye do well and are not afraid with any amazement. You might think, what? That doesn't make sense. Like, what is he trying to say there? But really, this further reinforces the admonishment to submit to the leadership of the husband. He's telling Christian wives that you are to imitate Sarah in the right things she did and not imitate her in the wrong things she did because we even have examples of wrong decisions she made and ways that she influenced her husband to make some bad decisions that uh, the nation of Israel and the world are still dealing with today. Remember, a meek and quiet spirit isn't just standing in the background cowering behind my husband, but it is ultimately a quiet faith in the Lord. That quiet faith leads to peace, the opposite of fear. We can't forget that the central theme of this epistle is faith in spite of suffering. And we don't want to miss it here either, because even when he's dealing with these Christian wives, recognizing that some of them would be in positions that they would suffer for being a Christian, even at the hands of their own husbands and families. And yet, Peter says, you can still live a life that is not characterized by fear because you can trust in the Lord. That doesn't mean that you'll never suffer, that you'll never face persecution, that nothing bad will ever happen, but it's all in God's hands and ultimately, He will vindicate everything when He comes. Peter says... That even if your husband is unsaved, whether he is saved or not, you can show a proper attitude of submission toward your husband and still remain steadfast in your faith toward God, and you really don't have to fear whatever persecution may come. And somebody listening tonight might think, yeah, the the women really got it tonight. They're not following their husbands, and they need to follow their husbands. Well... I like how Peter says in verse 7, Likewise, ye husbands. Because the wife has a responsibility towards her husband in the marriage. But I submit to you that the husband has a greater responsibility. Now, the purpose of this message is not the, the foundational marriage structure that we would see in Ephesians 5 and other places. Uh, we're not going to get into all that, 
But I will tell you, I, I, I'm very confident, I believe this passage is in perfect agreement with Ephesians 5 and others. So please don't misunderstand what Peter is saying. As a husband, you will be held primarily responsible for your marriage. You are the head of your family. That's not necessarily a gift. It is a responsibility. It's certainly not a privilege. You're going to answer to God for your marriage. But you are not above your wife. She's not your servant. She's not a lower life form. She is your partner. And she needs you to lead her as such. I will never forget, I was probably, I don't know, 13 or 14 years old. We were at the house uh, growing up. For some of you younger uh, uh, in here, I guess most of the teens are probably downstairs, but uh, my parents had a landline up until just like a year or two ago. I mean, it's just, just recently. And we had a landline all growing up, and we were very, you know, old school. Nowadays, most of the time, you answer the phone, and it's like, hello? That's, most people, that's all you say, hello, or something like that. And my parents were very insistent that, no, when we answer the phone, you say, hello, Quinlan residents. You need to identify yourself. And even if it is a, a scammer, telemarketer, or whatever the case may be, then uh, phone etiquette is, is paramount. And one time the phone rang and my mom answered. And I didn't hear everything that was said on the other line, but I could pretty much gather the gist of it. The guy was asking for the person who makes the financial decisions in the family. And my mom's first response, the very first thing that came out of her mouth was, you want to talk to my husband about that? And she goes over, here, honey, you need to talk to this guy. Okay, so he answers, this is Alan, and they start, same question. I, are, are you the person who, who makes the financial decisions of the family? And my dad said, my wife and I make those decisions together. And both of those are the correct response. Because as so much we see in our culture today that uh, the, the wife is leading the family and making those decisions, you'll see it on TV and movies that, that a husband will want to do something and there is a right way to go about it because you must remember you are in a marriage partnership. But the, the uh, conclusion that our culture comes to today is that the wife can pretty much do her own thing and the husband needs to be asking permission before he does anything, which is not the case at all in a marriage. Now, that doesn't mean that a husband should just be able to do whatever he wants and the wife better just kind of come along with it. No, but that does mean that they need to work together in these decisions. But ultimately, as a husband, the responsibility for the decision comes down to you, that you need to make this decision. Ladies, wives, it is your responsibility to support and advise your husband because there are decisions that, that my wife and I face that honestly that she has strengths in areas that I don't have strengths in. And there are plenty of times where she is going to advise me rightly. And as a husband, if that's the right decision, then that's the decision I need to make. But there are also times where she has, my wife has said, well, you know, I think we should do this. And ultimately, when it comes down to it, I, I have said, you know, I don't think the Lord is leading us this way. We're not going to do that. We're going to do something different. Because ultimately, God will hold this marriage responsible to me. I will answer for it. And husbands, you need to recognize that you are not the dictator 
who makes every decision by yourself, and she better just stand in the background and keep quiet. But you know, that's how so many today view the biblical structure of the family. So this, the cultural attitude has swung 180 degrees, and now the average man shirks his responsibility, and it's all placed on her shoulders. And we wonder where all this conflict come from, comes from. You, you, again, you see in TV and movies this husband who's just kind of sitting there reading the newspaper or watching TV or, or, or playing games or whatever the case may be while she is dealing with the important matters of, of life and finances and job and all those kinds of things. Men, it ought not so to be that way. Well, I just I can't have a hobby. I can't have some time that I can just goof off or whatever. You know, I've discovered the older I get, I thought when I was a kid, I'd look at these adults and go, well, they, man, you get to a point where you grow up and you can't have fun anymore and all that kind of stuff. But you know, I've discovered the older I get, adults still have plenty of fun. They can have plenty of fun. In my 30s, I am still as likely to goof off with my college buddies as I was when I was in college. And I think for the most part we need some of that. But if that is taking the place of dealing with the responsibilities of the family and marriage and home, then it is wrong and needs to stop. I had to be careful just this last week at YouthCon. My primary responsibility was to drive the bus around wherever Brother Jack needed me to drive it. And, uh, you know, I, I dealt with the teens some, but primarily that falls on, uh, on the Parkers. And so as they needed me to, I, you know, my wife and I were available to. But I had to be real careful because when I'm back down there at college and I start seeing guys that I went to school with and, oh, yeah, I haven't seen him in a few years. Oh, I haven't seen them in a few years. And you start talking and before you know it, they're waiting on the bus and I've just been talking with with so-and-so that I haven't seen in a few years, and, and it is easy to excuse myself and say, well, you know, I just haven't seen them in a long time, and so we really wanted to catch up, but that is a secondary item to the primary responsibilities. And it's a minor thing when the teens are just standing at the bus waiting on you, but it's a major thing when it's taking the place of how your marriage is going when it's taking the place of spending time with your wife or dealing with finances that, yeah, there can be hard sometimes. And you might be sitting there wondering, how am I going to pay for this bill? Or how are we going to pay for this, this other thing? But those are the important things that men, it is your responsibility to deal with. He says, dwell with them according to knowledge. That would have to do with knowing your wife's strengths and weaknesses. Uh, knowing what she likes and doesn't like. Uh, knowing where you really need to be getting advice from her because she might have a strength in that area that you don't have. He learns her quirks and eccentricities. He takes into account her desires and dreams as much as his own. But Peter is not being demeaning to women. Well, he calls them the weaker vessel. Look at that. Uh, Giving honor unto the wife. Okay, yeah, yeah. But then he says, as unto the weaker vessel. See, he thinks we're weak. Well, the fact of the matter is, by and large, most wives are weaker than their husbands physically. 
There's a reason women are stereotyped as usually being the more emotional ones or the ones who have a harder time making decisions. But you know, maybe instead of focusing on weaker, maybe we should take a look at the next word, vessel. Do you know what a vessel is for? It's for carrying something. But notice he says, women are referred to here as the weaker vessel, which implies that men are also vessels. And we've all been created by God for His use, for His purpose. Ultimately, this term reminds us that we are all frail and are obligated to be of use to our Creator. And that is ultimately the point of the marriage relationship, to show God's love for mankind, to be used by Him, to be, as Peter says, joint heirs of the grace of life. When he talks about giving honor unto the wife, that speaks to the common theme throughout the scriptures that God loves to take weak things and make them strong. He loves to take lowly things and put them in places of great honor. Uh, That's the very argument Paul uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 about uh, equating our bodies to the church as a body. How that there's the frail and weak parts are generally the most useful parts, are generally the important parts. And God loves to take those fragile parts and make them of great importance. So as a husband recognizes his responsibility to lead before God, he will naturally raise his wife up to a place of high honor. Do you know what your wife needs? She needs a buffer. Part of knowing her is recognizing when she's spread too thin or responsibilities that she shouldn't have to shoulder. My wife has such a helping spirit. She will commit to doing this or that or the other thing. And before she knows it, she knows that she's got way too much on her plate. And she will do her best to keep up. But sometimes it's my responsibility as her husband. And fortunately, it's not something that happens a lot. But I have had from time to time to step in and say, no, you don't need to do that. Yeah, but they might get mad at me. Well, if they get mad at you, they can come talk to me. And I'll deal with it. Because she doesn't need to have to deal with that. It's not because I just had to get in there and exert my authority, but because she needs me to dwell with her according to knowledge. And it's my responsibility. I was designed to take that pressure. So Peter finishes with, And as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. As a final reminder to husbands, even though you've been greater, been given, entrusted with greater responsi- or authority in your marriage, She is your spiritual equal. Your wife might just be smarter than you. She can be more talented than you. And there might even be some times where she might be physically stronger than you. But you are both made in the image of God and as such are joint heirs of salvation. And if you are not leading like you ought and living with her like you ought, it will affect your relationship with God. One man said it like this, So concerned is God that Christian husbands live in an understanding and loving way with their wives that he is willing to interrupt his relationship with them when they are not doing so. No Christian husband should presume to think uh, that any spiritual good will be accomplished by his life without an effective ministry of prayer. 
And no husband may expect an effective prayer life unless he lives with his wife in an understanding way, bestowing honor on her. Wives, it is your responsibility before God to submit to your husband's leadership, whether he is following Christ or not. And so long as he is not leading you to commit sin yourself, you must follow his leadership. Husbands, it is your responsibility before God to lead lead your wife as you follow Christ and to purposefully live with her. This in turn places her in a position of honor, but you cannot expect an effective ministry or prayer life if you don't recognize her as a joint heir with you in God's grace. You might be sitting in here tonight going, well, I'm not married. I mean, what, what bearing does this have on me? Well, maybe you're headed that way. Some of you, I know, uh, uh, may be getting married here before too long. You need to start living like that now. As a man, you are responsible to lead. As a young lady, you are responsible to follow. Well, you might say, I've, I've never been, I never will be married. Well, let, let me put it this way. Men, you are responsible to lead. Ladies, you are responsible to follow. The ladies in this church are not on a lower spiritual level than the men. We are joint heirs of salvation, but we each have different responsibilities, and anything outside of that order is simply chaos, and it will not be blessed by God. Those here who've been married for 20, 30, 50 years will tell you it wasn't the outward adorning that kept them married. It wasn't the outer part of them that allowed them to, to minister effectively and to serve the Lord and do what God wanted them to do. It wasn't the nice things that kept them going in health problems or economic downturns. It was the grace of God working in their lives. And as the grace of God worked, they both parties recognized that God has placed an order upon marriage and it will only be truly blessed if we follow it. Right. Say, so, well, I'll never be married then learn to lead or follow as God expects. Well, I've been married before and it didn't work out. Well, we can't change the past. But now you need to lead or follow as God expects. And as you follow God today, as you recognize God's leading in your life, God will work. But men in particular, the responsibility primarily falls on you to lead to maintain a right relationship with your Creator. And I've discovered that when I'm serving the Lord properly, when I have a right relationship with Him, it's a whole lot easier for my wife to follow. Right. And if you're, you say, I mean, we hear from time to time churches who, who just really lack that male leadership, and, or you might say, well, these, these women are just coming in and they're just trying to take over. I've discovered most of the time it's because the men just won't. They won't lead like they're supposed to. They're shirking their responsibility. So ultimately, men, again, it falls on you. So lead, maintain a right relationship with God, and you'd be amazed how God will work. Let's stand. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, thank